Right. We're back on air. Hello and thank you for tuning in to episode 8 of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. It's the podcast that celebrates the nearly men of Ashes cricket, those cricketers who played in only one Ashes test. If you're new to the show, don't forget to check out the website onceuponatimeintheashes.com for profiles and photos of all the players featured. And if you like what you hear, please do subscribe or follow on your listening platform of choice. Keith Slater was our first guest on episode one, the only living one Ashes Test wonder to play his Test match in the 1950s. A further eight players followed in the 1960s, from Ken Taylor and Fred Rumsey in 1964 to Pat Pocock, Brian Tabor and Roger Priddo in 1968. It's now time to leave the swinging 60s behind and head to the 1970s to find our next batch of one Ashes Test stars. There are six cricketers in total who played their one and only Ashes Test in this decade and five of the six are on the Australian side, starting with three from the 1970-71 series. Ross Duncan, Tony Dell and today's main guest, Ken Eastwood. Ian Chappell decided, well, we'll get to the ground an hour earlier. Normally get there about 10 o'clock, half past nine. So we arranged for the cabs so we get to the ground at half past eight. We waiting out the front for the cabs to come. comes about 15 minutes after they were supposed to be there, no cabs. Ring up and trying to get somebody eight o'clock in the morning and it's there. That week's their busiest week on their calendar with organisation and running around and whatnot. Anyway, they found out, oh, the cabs are on, on their way. Another 10 minutes, no cabs. Again, another phone call. Found out they'd been sent to the wrong motel. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> jumping around like anything. Anyway, Terry Jenner, who was a car salesman, uh, <laughs> said, come on, we'll go out. In the, we're on a main road. Come out. We're about 15 minutes from the ground. Go out in the main road. We'll get, a, get our own taxi. And we'll get out there. And as soon as we get out there, he starts hitchhiking with his thumb. <laughs> A bloke pulls up and he said, uh, all right, I'll, yeah, I'll give you a lift. We got a hitchhike to the ground my, my first day in Test Cricket. We got the bloke into the members' car park and he said, bugger this, I'm not going to work. I'll sit there and watch the cricket all day. Brian Tabor and Pat Pocock played 41 Test matches between them, but Ken is a true one-Test wonder. At the age of 35, he was plucked from the Victorian ranks to replace the Australian captain, Bill Laurie, for the seventh test of that 70-71 series, and then he never played for Australia again. We'll get the full story from Ken soon. It's a wonderful tale, and Ken tells it very well. But, as is customary, we're going to park Ken there for a moment as we dip into the Ashes archive with the cricket writer and historian Stephen Chalk. And we're taking a look at the 1921 series in England. This series is home to no less than ten of our one Ashes Test wonders. The highest number by far of any Ashes series. For seven of the ten, it would be their only Test match of any description. Here's Stephen to set the scene. The summer of 1921 was almost certainly the most difficult and chaotic summer of Test selection in England cricket history. The country hadn't recovered from the First World War. There was, as there had been after the Second World War, a dearth of emerging youngsters, and particularly a dearth of fast bowlers. For some reason, in trying to get cricket going again, we'd agreed to tour Australia the previous winter, where we'd been beaten 5-0 in the series, badly beaten in all the games. And we caught the boat home with the Australians who were coming over. And we only had three weeks of cricket before the first test match, no trial game or anything. In particular, they had a captain, Warwick Armstrong, who was quite ruthless, playing the game harder than previous Australian captains and having a pair of fast bowlers who were a new phenomenon in cricket in that up to that time, most teams had opened with one quickish bowler and one slow bowler. But here they had Ted MacDonald and Jack Gregory, who were simply too much for most of the England batsmen. The one batsman who played well in Australia and came out of the tour with great credit was Jack Hobbs. 
but early in the summer he strained his thigh, missed the first two tests, came back with a third, took the field, and then on the first afternoon, before he'd had a chance to bat, went down with acute appendicitis and didn't play again for the rest of the summer. Also, Johnny Douglas, who'd been a good captain before the war, had captained in Australia and was pretty much broken by the experience. And so the selectors were looking around for somebody to replace him, came up with this madcap idea of bringing back the 49-year-old C.B. Fry. Now, he declined the first game, made himself available for the second, and then pulled out at the last minute, then agreed to take take it on in the third test, but incurred an injury and never appeared in the team. So they stuck with Johnny Douglas for two tests. When Fry pulled out on the eve of the second Lord's test, he recommended that they picked the Hampshire captain that he was playing under at the time, the Honourable Lionel Tennyson, grandson of the poet, later to be Lord Tennyson. He was sitting in his club the Embassy Club in Bond Street, London, at one o'clock in the morning, smoking cigars and drinking, when he took a message on the phone to say, would you report to Lords for the Test match? So he finishes up playing in the Test and becoming captain for the last three Tests of the series. The selection process seems to be a matter of picking half a team, then adding players later, telling extra people to turn up. Very disorganised, not clear how often the three selectors actually met in person. Wisdom commented, our teams suffered from the casual and unsympathetic way in which things were managed. Men ought to be in no doubt 24 hours beforehand as to whether they're going to play in a test match. In all, in the five tests, they get through 30 different players. Let's find out what's happened to some of these players, starting with the opening test at Trent Bridge that saw the blooding of the first of our two One Ashes Test Wonders. Len Richmond, a Notts leg spinner, Titch Richmond, took two rather expensive wickets and never played another test. And then Percy Holmes, the opening batsman of Yorkshire. Now, this is something of a mystery, because a lot of people said he should have gone to Australia the previous winter. He was one of the outstanding batsmen of that generation all through the 1920s, opening the batting with Herbert Sutcliffe, a jaunty, cheerful man from Huddersfield, a brilliant fielder. In the first innings at Trent Bridge, when all the batting failed, he scored a rather impressive 30. And everybody said that his batting stood out and he was of test quality and would certainly be playing again. But he didn't. He never played another Ashes test. He wanted on a tour of South Africa six years later that wasn't a first team tour entirely and came back at the age of 45 for one test against India in 1932. So this mystery has always remained how Percy Holmes, who's an outstanding batsman and an outstanding fielder, only played one major test match in his career. Now, there's a chap called Home Gordon, who was an old Etonian baronet, never played first-class cricket, but knew all the people at Lord's and was in the know about what was being said. He published a fascinating book in which he has a chapter called Selectors, which opens the box on what was going on behind the scene. What he did report was that he was sitting next to Henry Foster at Trent Bridge when Percy Holmes was batting. And Foster was wearing the, the famous Selectors hat that they used at the time, a grey felt hat with a Zingari ribbon round it. Holmes had a way of playing Gregory and MacDonald, where he backed a little bit to leg at times. And this offended Foster enormously. And he said to Holm Gordon, so long as I have influence in choosing England, that man never bats in another test. Harsh words indeed. And the selectors continued with this pick and mix approach for the next test at Lords, where four players enjoyed their first and last taste of Ashes cricket. So we roll on to Lords, where we have the saga of C.B. Fry pulling out at the last minute and Tennyson being drafted on the morning, about 14 people turning up wondering if they're playing or not, including Percy Holmes, who's been named as the 12th man. Apparently, Johnny Douglas, the captain, when he arrived in the dressing room and saw the team in front of him, exclaimed, what's this damnable side of picnickers they've given me? Somehow or other, when Fry drops out, Instead of picking Percy Holmes to replace him, they bring in Alf Dipper, who's not the 12th man, he's the 14th man, and he's another opening batsman. A farm worker's son from North Gloucestershire, a very dogged batsman. 
He scored a brave 40 in the second innings when most of the batting around him failed completely. People said that would be enough to get him another game. But he was a poor fielder when he wasn't in the slips and he wasn't put in the slips. David Foote, writing about him, said he moved like a stiff-jointed farm worker rather than an athlete. That was his one game. They picked Jack Durston, a fast bowler from Middlesex, the best prospect fast bowler in the country. One reporter said he was not impressive. He could not make any batsman hurry his stroke. So for the next test, they didn't even have a fast bowler in the team. And then there was Nigel Haig, nephew of Lord Harris, a very talented amateur, good all-round cricketer at county level, uh, went on to Captain Middlesex. He made three at naught, had match figures of two for 88. And here was another one-test Ashes character who didn't reappear. And then finally, Another man who was picked for one test and never picked again, perhaps the most left-field choice of the summer, Johnny Evans. This was June 1921. He was an amateur. And since the summer of 1912, he'd actually only played seven first-class matches. He'd had a brave war. He'd won the military cross twice. Been in the Royal Flying Corps, flown playing over France where... The engine had malfunctioned and he crashed it and crashed it in such a way it had not been possible for the Germans to pick it up and use it. Then taken a prisoner of war, managed to escape, spent about 16 days on the run, recaptured, escaped again. Terrific story. He actually wrote a book about it. Quite a hero of the First World War. A man of enormous courage. But this is the conundrum of the whole thing. And this is what Tennyson wrote of Evans playing in the Test Match at Lords. He was so nervous that he could hardly hold his bat while his knees were literally knocking together. I endeavoured to put some heart into him by a few timely words when I joined him at the wicket, but it was useless. His nerve was gone and the first straight ball was enough for him. And then in the field, he's put in the slips by Johnny Douglas and he pleads to go out of the slips. And according to Tennyson, his hands are shaking. Douglas has said to him, You'll be all right, old boy, don't worry. <laughs> and there his hands are shaking. And he drops two catches. So, so there we are at Lords. We've got Evans in the slips dropping catches, Dipper in the deep when he should be in the slips, and Holmes, 12th man, when he's probably the yeah. best fielder in the squad. You know, we are stumbling from one saga to another. Then we move on to Headingley for the third test. We're 2-0 down now. Test starts on a Saturday, and the selectors agree to pick the team on Thursday afternoon during a gentleman versus players match at the Oval. Tennyson, who by then has been appointed captain because Fry is finally pulled out, is summoned off the field of play and sits down with them on Thursday afternoon to pick the team to go up to Eddingley on Saturday. The gentlemen have turned up with a very weak team. Six people have cried off. And the, on that Thursday, the players are scoring runs galore against a fairly ordinary players' bowling attack. Nothing like McDonald and Gregory steaming in for the Australians <laughs> and the selectors send the whole top six of the gentleman team up to Headingley and so off went Hallows, Hobbs, Hearn, Duckett, Harding and Brown. The two one test wonders we've got in that, Wally Harding of Kent and Andy Duckett of Surrey, both 35 years old, good county batsmen, both uh, coincidentally had played football for England mm. and Duckett had a quite an outstanding career. Duckett uh, captained Aston Villa to win the FA Cup and later became a manager of Fulham. And Harding played many years for Kent and he also played a good level of football. Harding looked good in the first innings at Headingley. He hit 25 and then he was given out LBW when he hit the ball. But that wasn't good enough to retain him in the team for Old Trafford. Duckett had a poor game. He scored three and two. And Wisdom commented, it was not easy to understand why the selection committee gave a place to Duckett. No one, so it was said, felt more surprised than the Surrey batsman himself, and he failed rather dismally. Harding and Duckett, the latest to graduate to our one Ashes Test Club. 21 years later, in 1942, Andrew Duckett would enjoy another dubious claim to fame when he became the first and only person to die while playing in a match at Lord's. A victim of an apparent heart attack moments after playing a stroke, he was dead before he reached the pavilion. 
and the match was immediately abandoned as a, as a mark of respect. So, back to 1921, three test matches played, all won by Australia, and the series was over. But there was still time for two more one Ashes test wonders to make their mark in the fourth test at Old Trafford. Well, the first was Charlie Hallows playing on his home ground, a stylish, elegant stroke player. Later, a few years later, scored a thousand runs in May, uh, one of his greatest achievements. Well, he didn't bat in the first innings. He was slightly too down, long down the order. And in the second innings, when the game was completely dead, he went out and scored 16 not out. That apparently wasn't enough to give him another opportunity, and off he went. Then played one test against the West Indies, a, a lesser team, seven years later, and that was the end of his career. And the last man who played his one test in that Headingley test, and, and rather controversially never played again, was uh, the Gloucestershire slow left-arm bowler, Charlie Parker who by this stage was 38 years old, but actually in bowling terms was in his prime. And only two men in the whole history of first-class cricket, Wilfred Rhodes and Titch Freeman, have taken more than the 3,200-odd wickets that Charlie Parker took in his career. And in the following seven summers, he took an average of over 200 wickets a season. And he, a really dominant and canny slow left-arm bowler developed a brilliant partnership with Wally Hammond fielding at slip and took wickets galore. He played in this game at Headingley, bowled 28 overs, good overs, and took two for 32. A week after the Old Trafford test, back at Bristol, playing against Somerset, he bowled 40 overs unchanged through the Somerset innings and took all 10 wickets, including the Somerset captain, John Daniel, who was one of the three selectors. <laughs> and you would think, having had a reasonably good game at Old Trafford and taken all 10 against one of the selectors' teams, he would have been a shoo-in to play at the Oval. But when he got to the Oval, the squad of 13 or 14 on the day, he got left out. And that was the end of that for Charlie Parker. In really? 1926, he got summoned to play at Headingley on a wicket that would have really suited him. And controversially, with a lot of people subsequently saying it was a terrible mistake, he was left out of the final 11. And even as late as 1930, when he was 46 years old, he got sent to the Oval play in the final match when the Ashes were still at stake, Don Bradman's first tour, got sent there at the last minute, then told he wasn't playing. Bradman hit 232, the match was lost, and the Australians went down to Gloucestershire, to Bristol for the next game, where he dismissed Bradman twice relatively cheaply, and Gloucestershire famously tied the game. And Parker, why did he not play more test cricket? And there's various views on this. The first thing to say is that he was a farm labourer's son from outside Cheltenham, a self-educated man with strong opinions on a number of subjects, particularly quite an admirer of the Russian Revolution, interested in classical music, a man who was prepared to say his piece quite bluntly at times, and there are accounts of him rubbing people up the wrong way, and famously on one occasion when Pelham Warner Plum Warner had become the England chairman of selectors. After a dinner at a hotel in Bristol, he got into a lift with Plum Warner and gave him a piece of his mind <laughs> about the selectors of England cricket. And that was thought to have completely cooked his goose for all time. There we are, 10 one Ashes Test cricketers in one five-match series in 1921. And we thought the England selectors in the 1960s were bad enough not even taking all 10 wickets in an innings, or those 3,278 first-class wickets were enough to give Charlie Parker more than his solitary test match. Thanks as ever to Stephen for that brilliant summary of a chaotic English summer. But now we must fast forward to 1970-71, to 71, and there's plenty going on here too. It's the only series between England and Australia to feature seven tests, which was lucky for our main guest as that's when he played in the Ashes. It's time to meet Ken Eastwood. Ken Eastwood was a left-handed opening batsman who played for Victoria from 1959 to 1972. In the 1970-71 Sheffield Shield, he scored 737 runs 
at an average of 122 with three centuries. This outstanding form gave him his belated chance in the Australian side for the seventh test of that season's Ashes at the age of 35. Ken, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thank you. Just a general question to start with. Would it be fair to say that you are the ultimate one test wonder? Oh, good question. <laughs> well, probably, probably was, although uh, it was a bonus. That was all as far as I was concerned. To think that I got it at 35 and wasn't in the Victorian side at the start of the season, etc. Going from one disappointment to the high sort of thing. But uh, it was unbelievable. Yeah, it's an absolutely terrific story. And we'll get to that series soon. I just thought we could start with how you got into cricket as a young lad. Who did you play for and what age were you when you started playing cricket? Well, started the primary school. 10 or 11, I got into the school side when I was in fourth class. And that was, you know, the other players, the main players were two years older. I did pretty well at school cricket and underage cricket and finished up playing grade cricket with Gordon and played first grade at 16. I was playing third grade before my 13th birthday and developed from there. I had about four years at Gordon. It was an era in which there were four of us about the same age. Peter Philpott was November 34. Ian Craig was June 35. I was November 35, and Bobby Simpson was February 36. And all of us were playing first grade grid at 16. And the other three were doing pretty well when they first started. And I took a season to sort of hit me straps. So the competition was pretty tight. They were always looking for these new Bradmans coming through the system. Cricket then, especially in New South Wales, was getting a bit well, how can I put it? Slow, dull or whatever. They had nobody to really promote or promote the games. They were looking for these new stars coming through and the four of us were always in combined sides, etc., underage sides and whatnot. So um, I was virtually the fourth cab off the rank as far as that was concerned. Who helped you with your cricket in your formative years? Was there someone who helped you with your batting? Well, there was a number, actually. It was more encouragement that I received when I was coming through the ranks. Sid Carroll, who was captain of Gordon, and he played quite a few games for New South Wales. He, he sort of put me on the right track at times. There were a couple of people at Gordon who ran coaching classes for kids, and they, again, helped me along the way and gave me all the encouragement that I needed, and especially when things weren't going to too good and you know you weren't scoring too many runs so yeah all those people helped me at times but you played your first class cricket for victoria so what happened there did you move were there any opportunities at new south wales no i uh, had to do my national service now it was a five months period from the first of july to the first of december and i was posted to melbourne and i was about 14 miles from where the club I played with here in Melbourne, Footscray, they were the nearest club. I rang up the VCA to find out where to get a game and they were the nearest club. So I played with them for those first couple of months till the 1st of December. And when I was leaving, Footscray had been in the VCA for about seven or eight years and they'd been in finishing the bottom four and all that time were the, sort of the whipping boys. When I left in 1st of December, we were either first or second on the ladder. They asked me, will I come back and finish the season? And, you know, of course, the, the opposition in New South Wales I had, I thought, well, I had nothing to lose sort of thing to come back. Anyway, I come back, I met my wife, and I got to the point of either getting engaged or going home. So I'm still here. <laughs> and what a wise decision it was. Uh, well, I could have done a lot worse. There's no two ways about that. And what was Footscray like as a club? Did you enjoy playing for them? Oh, yeah, it was. They're, as I said, the enthusiasm around the place when I first played there in that, that first year, uh, there was people in the dressing rooms. And one game we played Fitzroy, the second last game, we were second and they were third. And Neil Harvey had just come back from South Africa and it was his first game back in the club cricket because there was two other Harveys in the side. We had 
over 3,000 on the first day and 4,000 on the second day. So for a club game where you're lucky to get 100 people, it was exciting times as far as Putschkoe was concerned. So during this period, were you only batting or were you doing a bit of bowling as well? I was doing a bit of bowling. I, was, I used to bowl just orthodox left-hand spinners. Couldn't turn them. And I always wished that I could have batted against myself. I reckon <laughs> it would have been pretty easy. I, I like the, to be in the game sort of thing and try to just bowl tight and etc. And then I mucked around bowling out of the back of a hand and landed a few most of the time. I couldn't trouble good batsmen with it, but you know, the lower batsmen couldn't pick wrongs. I was useful, put it that way. So, okay, so the Footscray persuaded you to, to come back and play and then you, you got engaged and so you were pretty much set in Victoria. When did you make the step up to play for Victoria then? Was it the following season or did it take a couple of years? It took a couple of years. So that 50, 55, 56 was the first year and I didn't get in the, what, 59, 60 before I made, made the state side. That was the last game of the season. I played three or four games the next season and got... I think I got 160 and then I got dropped. And that was it for quite a few years. Was there a period then when you felt established in the side? When did that come? Never. The only time I played every game for Victoria in the season was the year before I got into the test. The Australians were in South Africa. Victoria had six players in the side. Our top four batsmen were Laurie, Stackpile, Redpar, Sheehan. And Bobby Cowper come back from Western Australia where he'd been working at the captain's side. We won the Shield. I was the leading batsman for Victoria. I was 100 runs in front of Graham Watson, who was the all-rounder. So he had the number seven spot. And I was another 100 runs in front of the next batsman. So I was virtually 200 runs in front of the nearest competition for that fifth place. And I finished up in the top three run-getters in the first-class season. Come next season, I wasn't picked. So that must have been quite a shock. As you said, 69-70 had that great season, and then suddenly, 70-71, you were dropped. Was any explanation given for that? No, but I've learned on the grapevine after, and this was quite a few few years later, Bill was captain of the Australian side. I'm talking about Bill Laurie, of course. And he had a tied old side. They were beaten badly in South Africa. And he had a theory, and it's got a lot of merit with it, that if you weren't good enough, didn't have the potential to play for Australia, you shouldn't have a place in a shield side. And of course, I was, what, coming up 35. The end of last season, the previous season, there was an Australian B-side went to New Zealand. My name was mentioned in dispatches. Richie Benet picked a side and had me in his side. I missed out, which is probably understandable to a certain degree. That sort of helped Bill's reasoning for uh, not picking me. It's uh, a possibility. What did you make of Bill Laurie and what did you make of him as a captain? Did you enjoy playing under him? Uh, He wasn't a gambler. He probably, does this go public? Yes. (laughs) No, well, the best captain I played under first class cricket was Jack Potter. We won the Shield with him a couple of years. Well, I first got back into uh, the Shield side when I was 30. The difference between the two, Potts would try and make things happen when, you know, when nothing was happening, where Bill would sit back and wait for it to happen. You know, he wasn't much of a gambler as far as taking risks when he was captain was concerned. You know, if I had to pick a, my best side, he'd be the first one picked. He was the most adaptable batsman. He'd get a job done, you know, irrespective of what the conditions were, how well he was batting. You know, he could be 20 at lunch, but still in there and taking the shine off the ball and whatnot. And the same bloke, you know, if everything was going all right, well, he could carve any attack up as well as anybody else. All right, we'll come back to Bill Laurie in a second because he, he plays a pivotal role in, a, in, a, in you getting back into the Victoria side and obviously into the Australian side. But just a word on your age there because you said you were, you were into your 30s when you won the Sheffield Shield. Come this 70, 71 season, you're, you're what, you're 34, 35. Did you feel you were improving as a cricketer? Well, I have a saying with cricket, the older you get, the better you get, as long as you maintain your fitness and keenness. The only re- 
area for probably for improvement it's probably between your ears and you learn you know you learn what you're capable of doing or learn by your mistakes you've made over the years and so you sort of play within those capabilities and my best years were from 30 to 35. Well, I knew, you know, when I was in the Victorian side, I got that period from uh, when, from when I was 30 to 35, 36. Mm-hmm. I probably got dropped four times in that period. There was only one season I played every game. I either come in halfway through or got dropped halfway through. Now, at the start of each season, I used to look at the first-class pictures to find out where Victoria were playing any games while a, a test was on what chances I had of getting in the Victorian side. Best part about that, getting dropped, every time I got back in, it was like my first game. I felt like a two-year-old. That enthusiasm sparked up. You know, sometimes I think blokes like Bill, I miss seeing their kids grow up and the people who used to tour England for four or five, six months and the problems they had, you know, at home with money and whatnot and the pressures that created, I don't think I would have liked to have been in that position Okay, let's get into the 70-71 season then, because we've, uh, it's such a fascinating story. As you said, you were dropped at the start of the season for Victoria. How did you yep. actually get back in the side? Because there was quite a bit of fortune around that, wasn't there? It sure was. It, uh, how, how much time we got? Whatever time you need. Uh, out of that disappointment, Victoria were playing four games in a row, three in Melbourne and one in Sydney. And the second game in Melbourne, somebody said to Sam Loxton in the dressing room, Victoria was in the field. Oh, I presume it could have been the 12th man, said, uh, oh, Jim Higgs has got an exam next Friday. Yeah? I don't know anything about that. Anyway, Sam was a local member of parliament and had all the contacts in the world, rang up the registrar at Melbourne Uni and said, has Higgs got an exam next Friday? And he said, uh, yes. What time's the start? 10 o'clock. <laughs> oh, right. Sam was like a bull at a gate, everything he did. He said to the 12th man, you're in on Friday. And then they had to find a 12th man. So they rang me up and asked me, would I like to come in and be 12th man? And I always said, better than working, watching, playing cricket. I said, yeah, all right. And then on the third game, Bill Laurie strains a thigh muscle. Not bad. We only had to get about 100 in the second innings on the last day, so Bill didn't bat. And we're sitting in the dressing room, and Sam Loxon, he's also an Australian selector, said, uh, what about Friday, Bill, for the Sydney game? Oh, uh, yeah, I'll be all right. It wasn't bad. Obviously, he'd probably play with was worse. I'm sitting in front of them while they're just, you know, having this discussion. And, and the test was the week after the Sydney game, the first test. And Sam said, well, you know, if you do any more damage, you could miss the test or could miss two or three tests. And I'm sitting there holding my tongue, wanted to turn around and say, I think you should have a rest, Bill. You know, save yourself for the test. <laughs> but I, I didn't. I wasn't game enough. Anyway, uh, this was going on for 15, 20 minutes, and all of a sudden, Bill could see the wisdom in Sam's comments. So he said, all right, I'll, I'll miss Sydney and be involved for the first test. So they couldn't pick anybody else. Well, I'm sitting in their dressing room. They wanted an opening bat. And I was a, the leading run getter for the previous year. So it would have been hard for them to try and bring a, a younger bloke or whatever they wanted to do. So anyway, I got to Sydney. We filled on the first day. New South Wales were about three for 300. 50 uh, at stumps, thunderstorms on the Friday night, water gets under covers one end. Fortunately, New South Wales batted on for, they lost three wickets in 20 minutes and they closed, so they used up half an hour on this drying wicket. And I had to go out and bat on this wicket for an hour before lunch. Dave Renneberg was the opening bowler for New South Wales. It wasn't any picnic. And anyway, I survived that hour. We lost... Ian Redpath and Stacky in that period. Anyway, I finished up with 200 not out in that inning. So that's where it all started. Those little things, you know, with Jim Higgs and whatnot. The postscript of the Jim Higgs's story, I was talking to him a few years later and I said, well, I'd like to thank you for, you know, helping me get into the test. He said, why? And I told him. 
He said, yeah, I was crooked on Sam on that. He'd arranged for it to have the exam at seven o'clock on the Friday, costing $50 to get the professor or whoever was required in there. So uh, if Sam hadn't been so quick off the mark or whatnot, I wouldn't have been around. Yeah, and he could have played. Yeah, and I wouldn't have been around for that game in Sydney. But that must have been very pleasing to perform. Yeah, it's got a double century when the pressure's on. Oh, yeah. yeah. Again, as I said, every time I'd been dropped and got back, you know, I felt as though it was my first game. And as I said, I felt like a two-year-old every time I went out yeah. there. Was that your best innings ever, would you say? As far as importance was concerned, you know, I got 220 in Adelaide the week after the test. But that, at Sydney, especially starting on that wicket, they had a bit of bit of moisture in it and uh, getting through that I'd say it was the most critical innings I, I had and then you followed it up with 177 didn't you when was that and who was that against that was against New South Wales again in Melbourne Boxing Day game was against, generally against New South Wales that was after getting the runs against them in, in Sydney I felt pretty confident or comfortable about facing them mm. down here in Melbourne I was looking at another 200 at one stage and, and I was pushing it a bit and got out. That created a bit of discussion and interest sort of thing. Yeah, so yeah a bit of momentum, yeah. wasn't thinking of any test cricket at that stage at all. So you're performing well. You're having a really good season. You're scoring double centuries, 177. Is there a part of you that thinks I might have a chance of getting on the Australian side or is that just completely crazy talk? I was worrying about getting the game for Victoria, or holding my place in Victoria before I'd thought about test side. At 35, there was no way in the world. So it begs the question, how did it happen? And how did you find out that you'd been selected? Firstly, you know, for it to happen, the Melbourne test, the third test in Melbourne, was washed out without a ball being bowled. And the powers-to-be decided to play the seventh test, because... That's where all their money was generated. They didn't have any TV rights in that period. If they bowl one ball in the Melbourne test, there's no seventh test. So no, no test for Kay Uswood. So that's where it starts, isn't it? Yeah, just having that yeah. seventh test at all is amazing. Then when do you find out that you've been selected? How, how is that communicated to you? I got a phone call from Rod Nicholson, the reporter at uh, the Herald Sun. I was at work and I said, fed income. I didn't believe him at first. That was how I found out. Then uh, he told me Bill had been dropped and I thought, ooh, what's going on there? Bill's got an average of 40-odd in an average batting side. He shouldn't have been dropped. and There's no way in the world he, he deserved to be dropped. What did you think at the time? Why did you think this was happening? Why did you think they were dropping Bill Laurie? I, I don't know. One reason I thought and it was way out left field. Every game I played for Victoria against South Australia, Bill and Ian Chappell was like chalk and cheese. Ian Chappell was turning the lights out just about after every game. Well, Bill might have a Coke or something in the first half hour and, that, and then he'd be gone. Yeah, I think they got on pretty well on tours and things like that. Whether the selectors wanted to give Ian Chappell a a clear go at captain the side, having a, an ex-captain or your previous captain in the side can be a bit awkward, I should imagine, at times. So that was one thought I had, but it was nothing to do with that. It was that what happened on the South African tour. Apparently, he wrote a letter to the board. They'd been to India first, then they went to South Africa, and they'd been away for virtually five, six months. And all they wanted to do was get home and the and the South African board asked them to play another game or asked the Australian control board, could they play another game? They weren't interested. And, and Bill said, you know, I'll write to them and said, we don't want to play it. Or, you know, and they weren't going to get any extra money, if any. And he said, uh, I'll write a letter and tell them we're not going to play it. Redpath and the rest of them said, look, you know, we should all write the letter. You know, We should all sign it. And Bill said, no, I'll, I'll sign it, I'm the captain. So he signed it and I think it didn't go over too well with you know, the powers to boost. So what happened on the morning of the first day? How, how did the preparation go? How did you get to the ground, etc.? Well, firstly, it had been raining for about a week 
before the Sydney test. We had a wet season. Vix went to Brisbane and we didn't leave the hotel. It rained for the four days. And I hadn't any, basically hadn't had a bat in my hand for two or three weeks before the test. Arrived in Sydney and it was raining, so we didn't go to the ground. This was on the Wednesday afternoon. I'm getting towy. My parents lived in Sydney. My wife and a, f- a number of friends come up from Melbourne. I wanted to organise some tickets, about 10. I hadn't seen anybody and I didn't know how many tickets I was allowed. Or It rained on the Thursday. It stopped raining on the Thursday afternoon. And Ian Chapel decided, well, we'll get to the ground an hour earlier. Normally get there about 10 o'clock, half past nine. So we arranged for the cabs so we get to the ground at half past eight. We waiting out the front for the cabs to come. Comes about 15 minutes after they were supposed to be there. No cabs. Ring up and trying to get somebody eight o'clock in the morning. And it's their that week's their busiest week on their calendar with organisation and running around and whatnot. Anyway, they found out. Oh, the cabs are on the road, on their way. Another 10 minutes, no cabs. Again, another phone call found out had been sent to the wrong motel. And, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> jumping around like anything. Anyway, Terry Jenner, who was a car salesman, uh, <laughs> said, come on, we'll go out. In the, we're on a main road. Come out. We're about 15 minutes from the ground. Go out in the main road. We'll get, a, get our own taxi. And we'll get out there. And as soon as we get out there, he starts hitchhiking with his thumb. <laughs> a bloke pulls up. Said, uh, all right, I'll, yeah, I'll give you a lift. We got a hitchhike to the ground my first day in Test cricket. We got the bloke into the members' car park. And he said, bugger this, I'm not going to work. I'll sit there and watch the cricket all day. My impression wasn't very highly thought of about administrators in Australian cricket. It was lacking all the way through the, that t- Test series. You go over to Victoria and you get a letter saying, Bird Tullamarine such and such time, you'd have two bags, one with civvies, one with cricket gear. Joe Blow from Melbourne is the manager. He gives you your boarding pass. That's the last you see of your your bags till you get to your motel or ground. Mm. There's taxis and buses waiting for you when you arrive at your destination. We arrived in Melbourne. There was four of us. It was raining. We weren't sure whether we should go to the ground or, or whatnot. We, but nobody to meet us or anything. No manager. Official manager for the for a test is the secretary of that state association, and he's you know run off his leg like that week. The lack of support for that test at that time, you know, we're getting two hundred dollars a test, and we're generating all the tens of thousands of dollars for for their coffers. Okay, well, what was it like going into the dressing room then? This was Ian Chappell's first match as captain, as you say. Was he yep. welcoming to you? And did you know the other characters in the dressing room? Yeah, you know, I played against them and uh, not that I had much to do with them. As, you know, I wasn't a drinker. And, you know, I wasn't a bloke that sit around in the dressing room drinking all, all night. No, I can't, I've got no complaints how I was treated. Got a lot of respect for him and for the job he did. Okay, well, what about the match itself then? I mean, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but how did that go for you? Very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't remember that much about it. As far as batting's concerned, I can remember getting out in the first dig, caught down the leg side. I can't remember. I got five runs, but I can't remember where I got them. I remember getting bowled in the first over in the second innings, and of course I got me wicket, which was a well-floated full toss. Well, and it was John Snow who bowled you in the second innings, wasn't it? What was it like to face yeah. him? A bit frightening, to a certain degree. You know, his reputation and whatnot preceded him, of course. I hadn't faced any of these blokes before, and I, you know, I thought after the test, you know, the regulars in that test side have faced these blokes five, six, seven times that season. If I faced somebody that often, I reckon I'd, I'd get runs against them somewhere along the line. Fortunately, well, when I say fortunately, we, we won the tots and they bowl, and there was still a bit of moisture in the wicket. You know, of course, I hadn't seen too much sun in the previous week. Going out there and I had, what, half an hour or so to, to bat before stumps. And I can remember one other ball. It was the first ball that Snow dropped short to me. And I hit the deck as quickly as I And the ball was about over my head and it was about two foot outside the off stump. Here's me nearly laying on the ground looking <laughs> like a dill. 
<laughs> so I, I can tell you I was champion ready for anything. But what a game. I mean, to say that was your only test, what a game to be involved in, though, because that's probably one of the most dramatic Ashes matches ever, wasn't it? I mean, what happened yeah. from your perspective with Snow and Terry Jenner and all the rest of it? Terry Jenner got hit and it was basically his own fault. Turned his back on it and got hit beyond the back of the head. Then the people started throwing stuff on the ground and whatnot. And the bloke grabbed hold of Snow. So Illingworth took his men off the field and uh, Stacky sitting there. And, and when they didn't come back after a couple of minutes, he said, ah, oh, we've won the game. They forfeited. <laughs> How long was it that they were off the field and did you think they were going to come back? I had no thoughts about not, not continuing with the game. Well, it was about uh, you know, 20, 30 minutes because they had to clear the, the outfield of all the uh, debris that was thrown on the ground. I don't think there was any, any thought of not coming back at all. You were in the dressing room at the time, obviously. What was the feeling like there? Did you think Illingworth was being a bit silly taking them off or did you think it was justified? Probably justified to a certain degree, but I could have just held them out on the ground and you know let people clear the uh, debris that was on the ground and got on with it. Was he a bit of a martyr, Illingworth? You know, like to be a big fella sort of thing. I, I don't know the bloke that at mm-hmm. all, but uh, he liked to be the boss. I would think. Was there an extra needle to the match after that point? Do you think? Not really. Yeah, you know, we were upset as far as holding anything against John Snow for, for hitting Terry Jenner because, you know, and he got up about chest high or shoulder high and he stuck mm. into it. No, I, I didn't feel any, any animosity floating around the place. And what about, we've mentioned Ian Chappell before and that was his first game as captain. What did you make of his captaincy? Obviously, you knew Bill Laurie well and he'd been dropped for that match. So you could compare the two, even if it was only for one match. Was there quite a difference? Yes, yes. <laughs> Chaps like to get on with the game, and every time I played against him in South Australia in the Shield games, he had uh, Terry Jenner and uh, Ashley Mallet, the spinners. With those two blokes, he could attack us most of the time. You wouldn't call him a negative captain at all. You know, I, I don't think he'd have a negative thought in his body. What did you make of the result of that match? Anyway, that was a very close-run game. It was a very tight match. What was your reaction? What was Ian Chapel's reaction? We should have won it. We only get 200 or 220 in the second innings. We had four sessions to do it. And the wicket was pretty good for a fifth-day wicket because of the moisture that was in at the start. A couple of our batsmen who got set didn't go on with it, which I thought was very disappointing, and they should have. I've said this, that the Poms were probably glad to see me walking out there and not Bill Laurie. Of course, it would have suited Bill right down at the ground. Played against him all season. The wicket was good. You had time on your side. You didn't. There was no great pressure as far as that's concerned. And he would have obviously done a lot, a lot better job than I did. But I do take the solace in, in saying that I got Keith Fletcher out in the second innings, and he could have gone on and got a hundred or hundred fifty and batted us out of the game. I do take it, you know, offset a little bit of my failure. Hey, it's not failure to play cricket for Australia. No way at all. No, I can't take it off you. Did you expect to play another test match for Australia? I was Australia's opening batsman for nine months. That's uh, some t- the way I like to tell yeah. people, yeah, rather than just one test. I was hopeful for the next season. When was the um, next series? It was against the, the World Eleven. The South African tour was cancelled. And unfortunately, that year I got in the test, there was no tours or at the end of that season away. Mm. There was this rest of the world series. Anyway, I just didn't start too well. Come December, I was out of the Victorian side. My second last game, I got 100. So in a couple of 40s in the games after that, I was well and truly gone. So the chance to hold me place in the test was pretty remote. I know it was only brief, but what did playing in the Ashes mean to you? Huh, good. Uh, well, you know, I thought it was a pinnacle. Finally get there. And as I said earlier, it was a bonus. There's no two ways about that, you know, the way that season started. It was nice, nice to get there anyway. You know, and I finished that with these two green caps, two baggy green caps that 
with their uh, running around and the administrators and trying to do everything. Gave me two caps to try on for size and I didn't come back to uh, get the other one. So it's stayed in my bag and I've still got two baggy greens. In pristine conditions, not a sweat mark on them. Anyway, it, uh, as I said, they can't take it off me. And I umpired for another, well, about 20 years after I stopped playing. I played till I was mid-50s, playing in uh, grade cricket. And I finished up uh, playing in seconds and thirds at Footscray, captain and them. Any Indian or Pakistani was playing and they found out I was a test player, they nearly got down their hands and knees and, and saying, oh, it's an honour to be on the same ground as, as a <laughs> test player and whatnot. Yeah, you know, it used to get a bit embarrassing at times. <laughs> but, you know, that's what one test does for you. I always said I wanted to finish up where I started and I started yeah. with the thirds up at Gordon and I finished in the thirds at, at Footscray. And that's where we're going to finish off by thanking Ken Eastwood for his time and those excellent stories. We've been richly entertained. I, for one, am very grateful that he got to play once in the Ashes and, as Ken says, they can't take it off him. Thanks again, too, to Stephen Chalk with his help, knowledge and expertise. We've rattled our way through 11 One Ashes Test Wonders, which means it's time to put this episode to bed. But not before I've marked your card for episode nine, And it's no exaggeration to say that this is the most remarkable story we are going to tell on Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Joining Ken in the side for that seventh test at the SCG was Tony Dell. Tony's story is one of dramatic highs and crushing lows, all resulting from his year as a National Serviceman in the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment during the Vietnam War. I'll say no more for now and let Tony tell you the full and frank story next time we meet. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett, and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. (laughs) 